Talks, live interviews with inspiring people. Episode 2, Camila Hoitenga. Life is bigger than flute. Do you love this music? <laughs> Show me that you love this music. It's absolutely important to have life first, <laughs> or at least concurrently. <laughs> I probably have it on cassette somewhere. One thing I think is really important is that you follow your interests. Hello, friends. In this second episode, I invite you to listen to our conversation with Camila Hoitenga. I actually met her online during last summer's flute expansion Sonic Immersion. She was in the faculty and I really liked her personality and her ideas. And when I learned that she actually was in Darmstadt, I really had to do this interview with her. I have to confess I was a bit stressed, but apart from being a living legend, Camille is also good at making you feel comfortable. So now let's go back in time and return to summer for an informative and inspirational moment. I am very humbled that you can have this little interview with me. I'm honored. Uh, Thank you. I'm glad you're interested. <laughs> I was uh, wondering how you would yourself uh, define yourself because people define you as a Stockhausen specialist mm -hmm. and people define you as the one who premiered everything from um, Sariaho. Sariaho. Yeah. Right, that's it. That's kind of a big question. <laughs> I guess as a flutist, um, you are defined by what people know you for. And that's kind of one aspect. I remember there was a part in my life, maybe 10 years ago or so, that I, I felt like I kept having to say, well, I play other music too. You know, I play Bach and I play this and that. But on the other hand, um, I do, I have done, I've spent most of the time with Sariaho music, Stockhausen, more now Sariaho. And um, musically, I guess that's that's a big part of who I am as a flutist, but um, I don't define myself just as that. It's, hmm. I mean, the whole thing of being a flutist, I do define myself as a flutist, as a musician, but I've always seen the flute as an instrument, like as a, as a tool, and that that is my means whereby I make my way in the world and my means of learning things so that I'm, I'm in the world to learn different stuff and, and develop myself as a human being. And because I'm practicing flute and because I've reached a certain level of competence, I'm put in situations where I'm continually being forced to grow. For example, because I am invited to Japan, um, I learn about a whole different way of approaching music and approaching life and, you know, how you behave in public and among people, you know, just really, really different things about life. And yes, I could have learned that if I were a taxi driver who wanted to drive a taxi in Tokyo or something, you know, do, you can do different things, but flute happened to be my means whereby, so to speak. Now you will hear Camila Hoitenga, Willembrook and Theodore Ross interpret Aya by Shokushida, 
a piece that was written by this Japanese composer living in Cologne for the ensemble. Life is bigger than the flute. I guess that's very important. It is. And it is. I think it's maybe the other way around. It's not, um, it's not that I'm defining myself or the flute or the flute's defining, but I think my life and what I do with my life and how I think, that contributes to how I am as a flutist or not. That is essential for my music making. I don't think you can really separate a person and their development with how they make music. That's, um, you know, it's not just practicing in your room and then going out and playing a concert. And I can't define it exactly, but there are just so many, so many other aspects. If you're learning other language, if you're learning how to breathe, if you have different relationships, if you've had different jobs, all of that feeds into an interpretation that's maybe hard to define, but I think it's crucial. It's absolutely important to have life first, <laughs> or at least concurrently, right? <laughs> not separating, not like... Um... Oh, yes, yes, definitely. Um, a bit back to Bach and your love for early music mm. and everything uh, you um, approach. Would you maybe... Uh, recommend to um, maybe younger uh, musicians um, 
to be less maybe specific or to not to go into uh, one direction? Or is it important that you are specialized? Also, in a sense, uh, you're not afraid of going in different genres. No, I of think. course not, no. And no. that may be... Okay, my family had classical music around when my, my parents had a lot of Tchaikovsky, Mussorgsky, Vivaldi the records, you know, LPs. Oh, yes. They took us every Christmas to hear the, hear the Messiah. It was a big ritual, and, and we went to concerts and things. And when I went to college, when I had a history of music, that's when I first discovered old music, like really ancient music, Renaissance and medieval, and I thought that was so cool. So I started listening to that, and then... Um, and eventually, and I played, I taught, <laughs> one of my teachers made me learn <laughs> recorder so I could play a Frescobaldi thing, just sort of threw me in there. We're, you're doing this on the concert, so, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, but it, I thought it was interesting in doing Your this. Your flute and, teacher? No, my, um, one of my music history teachers. Oh. Who had an early music ensemble. And they okay. wanted that. So, you know, it just stretched me and just doing, because this, Frescobaldi in this context would not have been good on the flute. It was better on the on recorder. The yes. so. so you went for it. Yes, so I did. Um, and later in graduate school, I learned traverso and performance practice and the difference between interpreting Blavé and Telemann and Bach. And that's also new music. At the time, when I, when I grew up in the 60s, we played everything bel canto style, and there was no difference between playing Handel or Chaminade, right? And so it was really exciting to learn all these performance practices. But all that, that different way of learning, looking at the same notes, that also made me interested when I did really got interested in new music, which I was also introduced to in college by another another professor who told us all about electronic music and Stockhausen and his intuitive music and Milton Babbitt and um, John Cage and all these people around. And so that also piqued my interest because all of this, the really early music and the really new music was all different than I had had at home. So yes. I really liked doing that. <laughs> Um, about your teachers, um, you also mentioned Marcel Moise. Mm. How was he? He was amazing. <laughs> I've had really amazing teachers, and I was thinking um, that I should really, I should tell people, yes, look, did you, wouldn't you have loved to study with Marcel Moise? Wouldn't you have loved to study with Julius Baker? I mean, I got to study with these guys, so I can share with you what I've learned from them. And Moise was really quite late, was extremely late in his life and relatively late in my life. I was done with my master's already, and mm -hmm. I'd come to Europe, and I was playing on the street, and a man said, uh, asked me if, well, he basically invited me to Marlboro where... Um, Moise was teaching. He said, well, if you get accepted in the class, you can stay with my wife and me because we live next to Peter Serkin on the, the land of Marlboro. And so, so it happened like that. Oh, and um, so I just, I wrote and I was accepted and went to study with him in Marlboro. And he, you know, I played Mozart for him and some other things. I could hardly understand him because he, 
Do you love this music? <laughs> Show me that you love this music. <laughs> he always loved that. And also, if you liked your sound, he'd always say, where did you get your lips? <laughs> and the other one was, who is your teacher? So those, those two things. And then if you were not showing him enough that you loved the music, that was the other thing. So, and then he'd go off in a tangent and start talking about various things in his history. And in one lesson... He was talking, he was talking about Saint-Amour, where he's from in France. And I thought I understood that. But then when I was finished playing, everybody's going, oh, you're so lucky, you're so lucky. I said, what? <laughs> he had invited me to study with him in Saint-Amour in France. And I hadn't understood it because of the language. <laughs> <laughs> so afterwards, I said, is this true? Yeah, but we may be So, yeah, so then I went to study with him for... Um, uh, in that later in that summer in Santa Moore where he was always going back in the summer, and that's an intensive course. He would he would only invite three or four flutists to come there, but at that time that was 1981, I think. Yeah, and I had already started working with Stockhausen. He was writing um, a Moore for me, so Moise was kind of living in the 19th century, and. Stockhausen was in the 21st already, and I was kind of in the middle. <laughs> just, it was pretty weird. I mean, I, I lasted with Moise about 10 days, but I had enough material for months, years. I mean... He was a generous teacher. He's, yeah, I mean, he, he would just say a couple things, and you'd rethink what you're doing. And, of course, but he was also, at that time, he was also a bit um, unpredictable. Like, I wanted to play Syrinx for him because... Everybody said he played for Debussy, and so he knows how to do it, and that's just fine. And then he was telling me, I said, oh, yes. He said, what do you want to do tomorrow? I said, yes, Syrinx. And, well, have you done Tafanel? Have you done Anderson, Opus 3, number, Opus 15, number 3? Have you done? No, no, no. Well, you do that, you know. And then I would come the next day with the etude, and he goes, well, where's Syrinx? You know, it's like, <laughs> okay, okay, okay. But I finally did play Syrinx for him, and so I have the official interpretation, so... If you have any questions, I will just do it. I've also was invited to play in the Teatro de Châtelet in Paris, so I'm fine. I've done my French thing. <laughs> so, how was the concert? It was amazing. It was amazing. Yeah, I was very, very honored to play a French piece and being asked by French people to play in a French uh, venue there. But um, that was after Moïse from that, so... But yeah, no, he was, he also compared it to the voice and he had very much, he was very, very interested in the colors of the sounds and where they are related in the phrases. And of course, 19th century opera was his point of reference, how the voice does it and how you think in it oh, and how you do like the, um, the swan, you know, the dee you know, and you're going away, and the swan is gliding in the water, and it's not shaking, so you don't have you don't have vibrato like that. <laughs> but just he had all he had all kinds of amazing things. On this excerpt, you can hear Marcel Moise himself playing the swan from Camille Saint-Saëns.
yeah, a lot of food for thought. But I was very, very privileged to study with him, so it was Must quite been, interesting, yeah. Such an experience. I know, because he's like, he's father of the flute. But again, he's, a, he's also a different kind of flute teacher, and, uh, and the flutist that also studied with him, like for real, like Paula Robeson, and I forget who else, but that was one of his main, main students, he was kind of a maverick also. He, he went, after the war, he was never reinstated back in his beloved France. You know, he was never able to go back and teach in the conservatory, so he basically established his tradition. So at Marlborough, and um, yeah, interesting guy. So he kind of also made his own path. At yeah, the end. absolutely. Yeah, and of course he did. He wrote out all these exercises, which we have a million to earn money. And sometimes you, you know, and he would just say that that's what he had to do. And um, but we benefit from a lot of that. The Della Sonority is my my Bible, my go to um, exercise every every time. You know, there's just it's, it's all different much. aspects. So, yeah. Can I return to Sarajevo? I was wondering how, how was your first encounter with Sarajevo? I met uh, Sarajevo here in Darmstadt. Okay. Uh, we were students in 1982, and we were standing in line in the canteen. And uh, she says I talked to her first, which is probably right. And we just started talking, and we hung out. <laughs> and the first week, there were the French. The French contingency was there, so we also hung out with... Gérard Griset and uh, Tristan Murray and Michel Levinas and uh, I'm forgetting somebody, but yeah, they they were only there the first week and there were a whole also some Polish composers we hung with and also Magnus Lindberg and uh, yeah we met a lot of people back then and we just and she was in the process of moving to Paris and so I visited her later in Paris and but we were friends before we were actually collaborators and sometimes we I'd go there and we wouldn't even think about talking about music we were just talking about whatever was going on <laughs> at the time so yeah um, I know that she doesn't like that people define her as a um, spectral film yeah. also a female composer mm. yeah well she's never she's made her way actually outside of the Frauen componist and the female composer group she's never actually dealt with it that way she got an award i remember this was must have been in the late 80s or early 90s must have been early 90s anyway i was there in heidelberg there was some kind of a frauen some composer thing and people were kind of she got an award and they were talking to her With the expectation, they, they, you know, what is she doing for women composers? They wanted her to be more active as a, um, you know, help women compose. And she said, well, the thing that she thinks she can help women the most is be the best composer possible. Of and that course. was, and that's what her job is. There are, you know, there are other people's jobs to, you know, get the word out or open a publisher for women composers or whatever, but that's not her job. And her job is really just to be the best composer possible. And that's what she's done. Definitely. That's why I was saying she is one of my role models because as, uh, as a flutist, uh, not, uh, it was my first introduction to uh, more new 
uh, techniques and, mm. and another kind of repertoire, but written by a woman. And, and I think that's very important, uh, mm. this kind of inspiration and in the, you know, the role models case. Right, yeah. yeah. How, how do you... Well, it's funny because I, I've played a lot of women composers, also in the 80s, and somebody else I met at Darmstadt was Andreina Costantini. She's an Italian composer. It's a beautiful solo piece. And uh, there's a woman, in, a Japanese woman, who's lived in Cologne for longer than I have. Her name is Shokoshida. Great piece for no kan, which is a Japanese flute and normal flute and some other things. We've, we've worked on things before. And I remember playing a program of... And someone was pointing out to me that, oh, you're playing a lot of women composers. And I hadn't even been aware of it. I mean, I was just working with these people, and this was music that I liked. And, oh, yeah, come to think of it. Yeah, I know this. And I've actually played also Ruth Crawford Seeger. And um, yeah, there's Ruth Tseklin. I mean, there's Teresa Procaccini. I've got a, I've got a whole bunch of women, female composers in my repertoire, but it wasn't, at the time, I wasn't actually looking for them. And, you know, I grew up and I went to school in the 70s, late 70s, and that was their first women's lib kind of the whole, um, the whole 70s thing. Yes. So, in a way, I kind of thought we had dealt with it back then. Silly mm. me, <laughs> because here we are in 2021, and there are still fighting. Issues. Yeah, but I mean, when I came in the 80s, the, you know, that wasn't as present a thought as even it became again later, if you can understand what yes. I mean, because, yes. yeah, so that was interesting. Wow. I want to say, wow, lucky you that it was so natural for you. No, absolutely. And I also want to say that I'm grateful for what have been accomplished by people like you and yeah but you know like when we talked a little bit about this in the course right yes. in the sonic immersion thing that for me it, it wasn't actually an issue and it kept going and I never felt like a man or I felt like I had to break I did realize when I was teaching at the Hochschule um, when I would send my students out to master classes, they put a lot more weight when a man was saying something than if a woman was saying something. And it, well, okay, if they agree with it, that's fine. But you know, then I noticed there's still, there's still this, and there's um, that's a whole other subject. But as as far as making my way, I never really felt like I had to fight that way. In in that context, as a teacher, sometimes. And among my colleagues, especially because, but that was almost more because I'm an American and we're used to being, um, we can combine fun and te serious teaching. And <laughs> I had to learn the German code of, you know, first you're serious, otherwise they're going to get it. You know? <laughs> Then you can have fun. Yeah. So, which was also interesting, but um, Yeah. So it's it's natural that I've been working with women and doing women, but it was never kind of a thing. It's never an issue. Mm, and in general, how? What is your thought, your approach to? I don't know authority in general or people that would really like to tell you what you gotta do. <laughs> <laughs> Having said that about women, I was asked asked once to play um, <laughs> a male violist, but they wanted, they wanted um, 
a woman composer with this. And I was so frustrated with this that I picked up the microphone and I sp spoke a piece like, Ich bin ein Frau, ich bin, I, I probably have it on cassette somewhere. I should really dig it out. And, <laughs> um, and then I'd start playing or, you know, and I got really upset. I, I proposed another piece to someone else, apropos authority, when they was probably laconisme that I had given. Well, don't you have something a little more virtuosic, you know? And then, then I so I improvise really super virtuosic because those are just you know I don't like to be told those kind of things <laughs> to do. <laughs> and virtuosity comes in lots of different forms, and the best form of virtuosity is that you don't notice the technique or you don't notice um, the work that goes into it because you're just transported to another place. That the music actually speaks for itself, right? So um, this male-female, this virtuous, non-virtuous, that has to be, that has to be another issue, you know. Yes. If you're having trouble as a woman getting played or getting heard, because I, and I know friends and I have people that are really struggling in certain areas and certain um, professions, that it's still, there's still a ceiling. And it is an issue, but ultimately what we're trying for is the substance, right? Yes. So that's where we have to keep concentrating on. And that's what that's what um, Kaya was also concentrating on. You know? And now an excerpt of Noa Noa by Kaya Sariahu, interpreted by Camila Huitenga. I think one can hear that in her music, that it's so authentic and, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah. but no, no, but, but this, is, this is also a criterion. If you're doing music, you, that you want to hear that it has to have been written, that it's not just like kind of a thought experiment, you know, well, let's try this and see. I mean, I think you can hear that in some pieces too. It's like, oh, okay, that was a nice exercise and this and that. But there are other pieces that you just feel like the person had to write it, they, they had to get it out, they had to make this music. 
Yeah. It has to be compelling. <laughs> by by the message and by aesthetics? Probably. Mm. Probably. Yeah, I think it's a difficult thing to define, actually, but I think it's a feeling that you get when you're listening to a piece that's uh also because it commands your attention. Yes. Right? Mm, what do you think ha has influenced uh, your own aesthetics as a performer, as an artist? Um, you've traveled so much. You, I, I, I was thinking maybe your relation with the East mm. and, all, and your relation with philosophy yeah. and everything that you were curious in your life. What do you think? Yeah, I think... Um, looking back or just looking what I do, I think I do prefer pieces that have some kind of relationship to um, like an Eastern aesthetic in that sense of the original. I think we were talking the other day about Shakuhachi coming from another place, your center. And I do tend to be more interested in pieces that have some kind of a substantial, I don't know, aesthetic philosophy. It's, It's difficult to define. I don't. But again, you can have you can have immense fun just playing a piece just for the sake of the sheer virtuosity, of you know. Course. Just for just. I was listening to the on my SoundCloud. I have Demersman that I played when I was I don't know 20 or something, you know, and just listening to it, it's just wow, that was really fun, you know. It's just like that's <laughs> that's that's neat too. Yes. And also when I was starting out with new music. Doing, I, I did a lot of things just because I liked the challenge. I wanted to do new techniques. I wanted to do figure out if, if how I could make this work. Um, with Stockhausen, he required me to do everything from memory, so I figured out I could do that. I mean, I'd already memorized my Iber concerto and Mozart and all that stuff, but that's a little different than. But through my aesthetic was also influenced very much from by him in the fact that you internalize the pieces and that you actually think about every aspect of performing. Also, how you enter on the stage and how you present yourself and how you're totally in the music and leaving out everything else just so that the music can be there. And now we will hear Camilla playing an excerpt of Stockhausen's Poles in a version with Devi Kermikai on Analog Synthesizer.
Um, where does your love for and your interest uh, for visual forms of expression come? Your oh, um, I had a great art history teacher in in college. Well, my parents were interested in art too, and they brought us through all kinds of museums. When we had a, a Europe trip when I was sixteen, almost seventeen, and we spent nine weeks in Europe visiting museums and churches and camping. The time. It was really interesting, and had my dad had a sabbatical semester in Cambridge, England, so we were there. So um, yeah, interesting experiences. And my art history teacher in college also just went into the depth of, you know, I had a year of that. And when I went to grad school, I actually wanted to combine art. I was also in the thespians group, the drama group, so I wanted to combine visual art, theater, music writing, you know, all that stuff together. And it was only one of the, one of the, my colleagues there said, no, you have to sign up as a flutist or they won't take you seriously. Right. So, so I did that, but, but I've just always been interested in that. So would you, would you say that you do combine all those things at different levels in your performance? Probably, but like we were talking before, the the improvising with paintings, I was much more active with that in the 90s than I am now. Talking about it, I thought, I really want to get back to it. But it was also kind of a thing in galleries. They automatically had musicians doing things, and now it's less common for, you know, these things go in waves maybe. Mm. But um, I worked really intensively with some, with a sculptor in Cologne, a sculptor, and uh, with another painter, and a woman and you know there there were these things but um so right now i'm not i'm i'm not interested in visuals in the sense that i want to produce my own things like melody you know doing doing mm. all the electronic visuals i'm working with jean baptiste who produces the visuals to the sariaho pieces and to his own pieces and i'm really happy to be a part of that Maybe one last word for our auditors. One thing I think is really important is that you follow your interests. And if you're interested in orchestra, then really do it and follow it and become friends with the orchestra musicians and go to the rehearsals and you will get a job, right? I mean, as long as there are orchestras, you can do that. And if you want to find something totally different to do, experiment until you find something that really interests you and then just keep doing it and then it's going to happen that's the other thing my career also it it someone was trying to say well what did you do and how did you decide well in a way i think it was a process of elimination i did not want to be in an orchestra i did actually want to play chamber music and i was a member of a number of groups for a while but they for some reason or another they would kind of fall apart And I started doing solo work just because uh, one group had just fallen apart and someone suggested, oh, do the solo competition in Holland, the Gaudiamus competition. I thought, what? Solo music, 1980-81, right? Okay, there's Verez, Berio, Stockhausen, who just printed in Freundschaft. You know, I hadn't worked with him yet. And I had this Japanese piece. Um, I don't even know if I had done 
Sariajos at the time. Maybe I learned it for that. And the two Dutch pieces. And I got a prize. And I, I just hadn't counted on that at all. So it was really, really gradual that I became a soloist. But then I actually eventually started working with people that I really clicked with for chamber music. So I have a really good duo with a percussionist, with a harpist, with a pianist, improviser. Of course, pre-COVID, it was fine to have your improviser live in Estonia, your percussionist in Stockholm, your harpist. <laughs> That's all been a little bit difficult. Yes. But it's, it's a question of following your interests. That makes it really simple. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. You're welcome so much. And that was our second episode of Flute Talks. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for our next episode with Anne Laberge. Mm-hmm.